Whenever I visit France, I always see lots of top bottles for sale, but when I get back home, those same bottles can be much harder to find, if not impossible. That's why I use IdealWine.com. At IdealWine.com, I can buy wines directly from France for delivery directly to my home. They have new auctions every week, and the fixed price selection is equally awesome. Clos Rouchard, Chateau Reyes, and Ulysse Colon, as well as many more greats from all over France, are regularly available on the website. Best of all, it is simple and hassle-free to buy them. Ideal Wine handles all the customs and logistics hurdles for you and for me. Wines are ordered with a couple of clicks, and then they arrive. It is simple. Check out IdealWine.com for more information. That's I-D-E-A-L-W-I-N-E.com to find what you'd like to be drinking. I'm Levy Dalton, and this is All Drink to That, where we get behind the scenes of the wine business. Prolific wine writer Alice Firing on the show today to tell us about her two books and also her upcoming newsletter release, The Firing Line. Alice Firing on the show today. Hi, Alice. Hey, Libby. Nice to see you. Uh, let me ask you. Go ahead. I get often asked for a cogent definition. I don't know necessarily one to give. Seems like a big topic of uh, conversation quite often. Uh, I know you're an expert in the field. What is Morris dancing? For some reason, I didn't think that was what you're going to ask me. But Ma- you are an interpretive I am, dancer. I am a Morris dancer, a longtime Morris dancer, and I am an expert in the field because I have been dancing in many fields over the years. Morris. Morris dancing is a ritual dance that came out of, well, nobody really knows. Perhaps the Moors of Spain had migrated to England where it really had its... Uh, its glory days in Elizabethan times when it became a pagan dance to make the crops grow. And it was really a fertility dance. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. Yeah. So the way it got interpreted was that each village in the, in the Cotswolds, and there are other kinds of ritual dances in um, coal mining towns as well, but in the Cotswolds was really uh, the, the central zone for Morris dancing. So each town would have the guys' team. And each town would have their own separate variation on a theme and their own little quirk that the village would do. They would do it for coronations, but mostly for the crops in the spring. And they would go and drink a lot of beer. And it was a man's dance. So when did women uh, break the barrier there? Mostly the women broke the barrier in World War One. The Got guys it. went off to war, and the women kept the tradition alive. And then, Somebody, I did not. Right. And then the men came together. home, and very much like um, Orthodox Jews said, uh-uh, uh-uh, you're not going to dance here. And the women would not take no for an answer. It was all part of the whole worldwide suffragette movement. And they, they started forming their own teams. And then it slowly migrated to when American women started dancing, having their own teams in the 70s. And I'm probably, I'm on one of the earliest Morris teams. And women, women would do it, men would do it, and every once in a while a mixed team would do it, but, you know, the purists didn't like that very much. Anyway, it's very athletic. 
and fun. Did you get a chance to introduce the bearing of the horn to the Morris dance uh, routine <laughs> for the crops? Well, or? they usually, you know, there there's um an a dance called Abbott's Bromley that does use horns on their head, and that is, is there really that is usually done around winter solstice. Bear, stuffing them full of am I allowed to say shit on the oh yeah stuffing them full of I can shit say and it for you. <laughs> would be would scat. be quite would be quite funny to would be great take them up in the spring and then do a little Morris dance I think maybe we'll do that this year <laughs> I'm just you know I'm, so you 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 dance along for the harvest and at some point you made a connection where you were uh, concerned about intuitive methods of uh, vine husbandry, and what is the what was the progression? There? What was the progression from Morris dancing yes. to wine? Yeah, how did it all come about? Or to Morris dance to the vine? Mm-hmm. Uh, that uh, it uh, to oh god, isn't this terrible? Say so to quote my first book. Yeah. Uh, of I, many, I think yeah, I. Um, I hope. I think I started out by saying something like, "I started out." Drinking Manischewitz mixed with seltzer when I was in diapers, but by the time my father left my mother for the neighbor's wife or ran off after the neighbor's wife, I was drinking Matus. So that was a very, very typical progression in a Jewish household. Now, how I leap, actually, there is a Morris dance and wine connection. So I'm doing my normal thing. I'm in college. I'm doing all the things one does in college in the 70s. And then I go to, I'm interested in Did it in have wine. anything to do with getting 100 points on, on test papers? Uh, no, actually. Okay. That I'm just double checking. I was, that was never into the 100 the, point thing. <laughs> Even on exams, unfortunately. I went to graduate school in Boston. I started playing fiddle for a Morris team. Oh, okay. Because I missed the dance auditions, even though I was a dancer, and I was really, whatever. And my roommate was a Morris dancer and had a wine con- collection, first one that I ever knew of. And then another Morris dancer had a wine collection. And so it was Morris dancing and wine, and we started doing all these wine tastings, and I started tasting crazily for 10 years. And there was the thing about like you would come in early to taste through to yeah. find the one that you wanted to really spend some extra that's time with exactly, and sit next to that bottle. That's exactly right. We had two tastings a week in my apartment because Natalie also was in the wine business. So we had a lot of trade people coming in, uh, quite a lot of wine. And I had no interest in learning about wine because I really had this thing, oh my God, it's so snooty. It's like m- most people. It's really, you know, I don't want to deal with any of that snobbery, but I did like it. And I just... The only thing that I wanted was to find what I liked before anybody else did, so I could have more of that. I'm a very greedy little girl. Well, it's worked out. So worked let's out. talk about that first book, oh. 2008, mm-hmm. uh, The Battle for Wine and Love. Yep. Um, what has changed in the four years since that was published in the wine world and in your life? Hmm. Well, you know, I started writing the book in 2006, so... But since 2008, what has happened? Wow, my God, such a lot. First of all, when I wrote that first book, I barely mentioned the word natural. It was just wine. I was writing about authentic wine and the loss of uh, traditional wine in the world. And then it became all of a sudden, first of all, then it became natural wine. So that that whole category and that whole term took off and became extremely... um, 
oh God, just uh, what do we call controversial? There's fraught word, with danger. Fraught with danger at yeah. every turn. What else happened is there's a whole explosion in people working more naturally, to use that term, and alcohol levels have come down. There's been a shift away from greening, um, greenwashing, um, to there have been greater awareness of what actually can be done to a wine to be tampered. And there are more safe places in the world for me to drink, and that I'm really happy about. And they're not all in Brooklyn. That I'm very happy about, too. It has, uh, the whole awareness has gone into middle America, so it's just not confined on the coast. And so it's just become a whole world explosion where there are regions where I just couldn't drink. In 2008, I would never be able to say that I spent the whole night happily drinking California wines, and I have since. So that, those are a couple of tremendous, I think, progressions in the wine world. I wrote the book because I got tired of hearing my colleagues complain and nobody had the nerve. If with me, it's mostly that I'm tired of all you guys belly aching. Like, what are you scared about? Just do it. I would be in, you know, trade wine tastings. And even I remember t- this, this incident is in the book, like Tom Matthews, who was at Amantes, um, tasting at um, Gramercy Tavern. And he- the Mataran Montes. Mm-hmm. Okay. Just no, 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 Montes, Montes um, from uh, Chile. Oh, okay, thanks. And he, Aurelio Montes. Yes. Thank you. And he was like, but basically, but where's the tradition here? Why are you moving away? What is, this tastes nothing like, I, there's no sense of place here. That was before he had his position. He was still a wine spectator, but he wasn't the top dog. And other people would just bitch and moan about the scoring and, and then write really great things in publications. And so I, I really just kind of get fed up. And I said, somebody has to speak out about this. And so I did, not thinking anybody would listen. Um, so it did feel that way in the beginning. Like, it, it felt that way This is just me, and I'm going to say this, and other right. people are probably not going to buy this book. Right. And not too many people did, but it it's... Um, had its in, it did have its influence. I can bring my copy down from the shelf. It really is probably the only better. one that was sold. <laughs> no, there were at least a few others. Sold. If it makes you feel better, it's right on top of Emile Peyro's The Taste of Wine. Oh, so, you know, I, I like to bookend it that way. Yeah. You know what I mean? <laughs> well, it's it's a poetic justice there. And I suppose now there are a lot of people who are when I when I read things about people writing about authentic wine. And going, oh, do you know that the first book was really about authentic wine? So it's kind of, a, I kind of feel like that, yeah. Do you feel like a lot of uh, the subsequent years have been footnotes to what you laid out in that book? What do you mean by footnotes? Um, expanding on the the thing that you said in a couple sentences and in a, a deeper, more um, uh, more example laden way. That what other people have been writing about are more like footnotes? Or what I've been writing about? Either one. Do you think you really charted it in that book and then subsequently mm, I, I the just, conversation has been shaped in that manner? I actually haven't seen anybody spend the time and the effort to go and take it further. And God knows it could have been. Had I had more money, uh-huh, uh-huh. I could have taken it further. Uh, it's uh, There's a lot of rehashing of what I've, said and i so don't, don't see a whole lot of original research gone, it hasn't drilled down deeper no and you do visit quite frequently the area involved when you speak about natural winemakers in europe 
Like you're frequently in the cellars with them. I'm frequently in the cellars with them. And because I'm not necessarily independently funded or funded by anybody else. Oh, you're I'm, not. <laughs> there ain't well, no I don't know if we can continue fund. the show if you're not going to be able. Oh. Yeah, but um, I know. But I, so I don't have total, like, for example, I haven't been to Italy since I wrote the first book. Oh, really? Okay. But there was a chapter on how much you happened to enjoy one particular Barolo. Yeah, that was, I was going to Italy quite a lot back in those days. And that's a very good example of how things have changed since the book came out. When the book, when I was last in Italy in 2006, this was just starting and Italy was almost lost. Mm-hmm, there was mm-hmm. very little coming out of Italy that I felt was authentic. And now it's just blossomed and it kills me that I haven't been back. And that's really just a financial thing. It's whether or not I can get somebody to send me over, get a story. And um, that's one thing that I'm hoping I'll be liberated a little bit by if my newsletter takes off. So I'll be able to do what I need to do. So speaking of that, and financial success. I saw you had a Kickstarter I campaign did. for kicked ass on the Kickstarter. Yeah, you doubly kicked it. <laughs> yes, like, I did. Kick square. Yeah. So how did that all come about? The genesis. Why did you decide? Hey, I'm going to do a newsletter. It was actually Jose Pastor two years ago. Who do you, you know, Jose? I do. And Jose is listening. Jose is very obsessive. And when he has an idea, he just doesn't let you go. And there was one night, and I was visiting with him, and he kept me up till dawn, literally, like banging me over the head. Alice, you have to do this. You have to do this. You have to do this. No one else can do this. You have to. We need this. And I didn't, why, I didn't want to do it. I really didn't want to do it because I hate writing notes. Mm-hmm. I hate writing pacing okay. notes. All right. And I know that. And not I like was, you don't take notes in the cellar. You're saying right. you don't like the tasting note form. I do not like the tasting okay. note form. And I Where don't. you s- describe the, the flavors in a wine that you may right. find and when the drinking window may be. Right, exactly. And I find, I mean, I'm a, I got into this whole wine writer thing because of being a writer and not because I'm an, uh, a wine mm-hmm. recommender. Right. And then. But you was, have been that, I think, for a lot of people, though, like at I, least in broad strokes. It took me. It took me until May of this year to finally understand that. Oh, okay, all right. And I'm not being modest. I'm being actually. I just didn't really get it. And something else that seemed to take you by surprise was the reception to the Kickstarter campaign. Oh my god! Yeah, because it was a lot of people chipped in. It was a lot of people chipped in dramatically. A lot of people I don't know. A lot of people within who I don't know welcoming it enthusiastically, and I, I to make my goal in under twenty three hours. I thought that was pretty wild. So now it's just acting as probably right now the only way that people can sign up. And hopefully after the twenty fourth, when it comes down, I'll have the sign up page up on my blog. But it, it was shocking, and that said, okay, I can make this work, and I'm still obsessing about. What I can give that will be worth the money I'm asking. And that's because I always view the world through somebody who doesn't have money. Uh-huh. <laughs> and so I'm very I have those conscious same of eyes. that. <laughs> it's funny you should mention. And I have to remember when I'm doing this that many of my readers do have money. So I have to think of them too, instead of just looking for the bargain ones that I'm most likely attuned to. Let's see, what can I afford? 
And so it will be a nice, nice mix. About recommending those bargain wines. Yeah. Have you seen some of the wines that you have enjoyed in years past get more expensive and oh, yeah. suffer any frustration as a result? Totally. So do you think that spreading the word can sometimes be mm, mm. a little rough? Well, that is actually one reason that I thought I'm going to take... I stopped, take, stopped really wanting to write about this stuff in my blog because it will have a more wide readership. And I'm not interested in... The wines that I like getting into the wrong hands. Uh-huh. Not saying, of course, everybody I don't reads my think blog. They're bad people. Is the right hand? They're the they're right hands. Yeah, exactly. And somebody, it's not like yeah. somebody reading the Wine Advocate, going, "Oh, yeah, let's try a Christian de Cruz wine." Where you know it sounds pretty good. Like they'll be freaked out. Oh, uh-huh. I they're like that. Totally, one. F- it's delicious wine. But right you know, here. good. Oh, good stuff. It's really. You have that rosé this summer. Yes. Oh my god. Yeah, it was great. Best cheap rosé. Unbelievable, had. and he's he's a fabulous. Don't make guy. it more expensive, whoever you are. You know, and he's so inexpensive he can be, but it's like, and I've seen the way he lives. It's like you know, Christian, you can probably uh, with the you, horse you know. in the living room. <laughs> <laughs> he's really, and this, yeah. now he's going to have an ox. Oh yeah, that's right. I heard right, that. yeah. yeah, because it's gent- more gentle in the in. So some people can add a couple of dollars. It's re- though generally it's heartbreaking for me to see what's going on with Beaujolais. Uh-huh. And that's a topic that's come up with a few of our, especially retail guests, yeah. where, you know, it's surpassed not just the $30 mark, but the $40 mark. Right. In some instances. You know, I do really love the wines of Jean Foyard, but I just don't know whether, um, you know, there's one guy, I'm not going to give any names here, but there's one guy that I visited and I wrote about in the first newsletter. Okay. Because I think I almost put to bed the first copy. That, you know... Is going to be a really good runner-up to Foyard's wine, and you know, they're like twenty bucks. Sometimes I think that by popularizing Foyard and allowing him to make more money, we encourage other people to take a similar route in life, as opposed mm-hmm. to going to work for the Fiat factory or whatever it may be. They're, <laughs> they're like, "Oh, that guy can afford things. Maybe right. I'll be a winemaker. Maybe I'll look into that style. That seems to be working." Yeah, though it still is a hard road in the Beaujolais. I was there in June, and man, it's going to be a really devastating, devastating harvest. And when I was there, there um, a couple of newspaper articles saying about fifty percent of people will go out of business this year. Really? But th- that's kind of being hysterical. Probably not fifty percent. Same thing in Muscadet. The people who are working well, they're not going to make a lot of money this year, but they will survive and they will thrive. But look at uh, Guy Bossard. I mean, he's had disastrous, of course, disastrous vintages recently. I mean, I can he afford one more? Um, let's see. Yes. Okay. Well, you know better than me. I mean, you've been there. But I just, yeah. I love the wines, and I'd like to see them continue to be made. Yeah. So, I don't know. I worry sometimes. Is that I'm not? I'm not. Well, actually, last year was pretty. There, I can't remember what. The yields were last year. They really it was okay. Pretty, yeah, yeah, it was, it was okay. It was a couple back so where it was. It's it was a couple of backs. So they've been had one off one. So it seems as long as there's one good year, it's um, this one guy that um, that I visited. He's down to um, fifteen hectoliters per hectare this year. It's usually like thirty five. And he just gave a shrug. You know, the guy is totally not rich. He's a little bit like Christian in that way. And he said, it's agriculture." No, but on the other hand, he's really, his wines are better. People are liking them and he's really optimistic and positive. 
It seems to me like you have a firm sense of what you do and don't like. Is that a fair statement to make in that terms of flavors? Is, that is a very fair statement. Okay. And do you think that having that helps you build an audience in a way? I think it's why people who like me like me. Yeah. How big it can grow, I don't know. Yeah. You know, it's, but it is the one thing that people know when they read me, they know what profile of kind of wine. They know a basic parameter. They know that I will never recommend something um, that is big and blousy and oaky and, and made with a lot of technology. They know they're going to get a lot of Muscadet and Gamay. <laughs> they know that for sure. Um, yeah, very specific tastes. If I find it weird and I still like it, they know that I have tolerance for VA. I'll warn them. They know I have a tolerance for, um, yeah, for cidery flavors. They know that I like orange wine. They know that I love wines. I'm not scared of tannins. And it's interesting to see how many people are willing to go on the ride with me. Yeah. Is there a difference between objective and subjective writing about wine? Is it at all important to you if there is or is not a difference? And what would you say to someone who wanted to write about wine who might look to you for advice about which road to take or are they the same road? Is it possible to be strong in an opinion and objective at the same time? Given who I'm writing for, I have to do that. Uh -huh. When I'm writing a straight journalistic story, I have got to do a straight journalistic job. And actually, it's pretty funny that there was an article in 2001 that I wrote for the Times that I um, that pretty much put me on this platform, which was called for better or worse winemakers go high tech. It came out yeah in 2001. And at that point, I was just searching for answers, and I had no point of view. Uh -huh. I had no point of view on microox. So you weren't you didn't come out of the womb saying this is how it's going to be, and we're going to no. storm the barriers. But it was very interesting because. Okay, um, one of the winemakers in the story who talked to me about microox, and he opted to have his photograph taken, which I had nothing to do with. It was the, it was the, um, you know, the the art department. He really, he just, I mean, I got a several pieces of hate mail, and as if I ruined his career because of my slanted judgment on the piece against it and I knew it was after and I was just asking questions so it's kind of interesting to see how that got laid upon me I think that when you're writing a story it you must be objective if you have a sir if you're giving a service to the audience if I'm putting forth my opinion it's my opinion and I think the blog is totally totally objective and I try to put it I do try to put it in context I don't like and I think that when th I'm interrupting my own self, which I do quite often, but I have been doing this for a long time, and I do have a breadth of knowledge, and I do have a context that I put my opinion in, except when I'm being snarky and I just want to be a bitch, which I tr actually don't do as often as people think I actually do. So do you think that by being honest about who you are and what you like, that helps clarify in terms of... Um does that make a subjective piece more objective if you state clearly in a piece who you are? 
Mm, I don't know about that. It, I think that that is important for disclosure. Mm-hmm. And it's important for people to know, okay, this person is writing this piece from this point of view. Perfectly fine. But it's very different from doing a research piece. If I'm doing a research piece, I am being as objective as possible. I am trying to get both sides of the situation. And, um, but there's no doubt about it. There's always a way that you can flag. So my readers will be able to go, well, Alice is writing this piece. I, nobody in their right want, mind is going to give me a piece in support or to talk in support of reverse osmosis. Did it take a while to find your personal voice? Because you, you talk about how people reading your piece can know it's an Alice piece. Did it that take a while or was that something that you always had, the ability to infuse a piece with your personality? Like when I read your stuff, it's 100% you. Like I totally get you. You know what I mean? I mean, I don't know if I get you, but I get that you're writing that piece. I mean, I get mm-hmm. it. Um, I feel that. And for that reason, it's almost like kind of a, um, like you're on my couch and you're telling me the story. Whereas sometimes I read and some people seem to take a more detached, um, like uh, it could be anybody behind the curtain kind mm-hmm. of thing. And I wonder, have you always had a strong personal voice or is it something that as a writer developed over time? I can only talk about what was told to me when you know growing up and writing. I wrote my first novel when I was eight. I never thought I was going to be a writer. Everybody else thought I was going to be a writer. Um, and I won all sorts of writing awards through school, but still I was going to be a dancer. I wasn't going to be a writer. And the first time uh, when I was applying for MFAs, I remember, I think I always had, I didn't get my MFA, but remember one comment about uh, she has what we can't teach and we can teach her what she doesn't have, which is, by the way, grammar. (laughs) Oh, that's what they said? Yeah. So I just, I always had a voice when I wrote the Food and Wine Magazine official wine guide. The editor said to me, well, you certainly have a strong voice, but we'll deal with it. (laughs) Because that almost, uh, that almost echoes a a line from your book, uh, the f- the first book in yeah. 2008, where you went and you talked to the professor at Davis, and uh, you asked him if uh, he was teaching biodynamics, and he said no, and that uh, then you said, what about some of these decisions that seem intuitive, and he said we teach the class, but we don't we don't right. worry about the intuition, mm-hmm. and you said in the writing that. When you go to Yale Drama School, mm-hmm. they want you to have the fire, the burning, the intuition, and the rest they'll teach you. Mm-hmm. And you asked uh, rhetorically in the book why UC Davis didn't do the same for right. winemakers. Right. So sometimes what I see with the sommelier set mm-hmm. is that they're trying to recreate the experience that was so meaningful for them getting into wine for this person that has come in for dinner. And it, it takes different shapes based upon how that first experience went for them. Mm-hmm. Do you think that that is something that you feel strongly, that you search out the sense that, yes, we are looking at a person and we're seeing if there's a spark in there or not? Because the technical stuff, what maybe you could say wine focused on for 20 years is really something that we can teach 
but the spark and the interest and the natural talent is something that we can't. Is that your personal story? And are you looking for it in other people? I do look for it in other people. Um, I look for it in, in certainly in winemakers. Um, yeah, I do definitely look for it in winemakers, which is why if I taste a wine that really moves me, interests me, I really do go out of my way to travel to meet the person who made it. And I don't always have to like them, but I want to understand them. And I do find that absolutely it's reading the writer behind the novel. Mm -hmm. And that furthers my understanding of the wine because to me, wine that moves me is never just something in a glass. Do you think that in your wake, wine writing has become more personal? Do you think that we talk more about personalities for better or for worse? That we might say, hey, that's the guy with the RO, or mm -hmm. hey, that's the guy with the oxen. Mm -hmm. But that's the guy right there. That's the guy. Not that's the thing that looks like a 93 on the page. Do you think that one of your legacies is a viewpoint and a camera lens on people? I don't know. I would, um, I would be very pleased if that was one of my legacies. I, that would, yeah, that, that would be worth writing on my gravestone. I think that'd be good. So we skipped something, which was your second book. Yes. Which was uh, Naked Wine, let, Letting Grapes Do What Comes Naturally. Right title that I had some trouble with. Well, I remember you, you sent me an email and you were like, hey, here were some ideas and I couldn't have, any, I, I was like lost to come up with oh, anything. God. Yeah. I, yeah. I think I recommended like new descending a staircase. Don't drop the glass because it might shatter. Oh, like, that would have been yeah. great. Yeah. It couldn't get that one through. <laughs> yeah. Publishing house did not get it. <laughs> uh, yeah. And I realized, I do realize now after my first book that a title is really, really, really important. So let's take it back for a second. Let's talk about the first book again, because the subtitle of that mm -hmm. was How I Saved the World from Parkerization. Yeah. I love telling the story how I, how I got that. I got the two of them. I was in ballet class when the battle for wine and love came to me. And I didn't have a cell phone in those days. And I ran home. And I didn't have anything to write down. I ran home so I wouldn't forget it. And then later that day, as you've been in my apartment, so you know that there's that bathtub. So I crawled into it. And then so I'm in the middle of the bathtub. And like, or how I saved the world from parkerization. And then I leaped out and I wrote that down. And... It was always meant to be just funny because I really Oh, felt, it was. Yeah, I was like, like, I couldn't prevent anything. I was just Alice firing. I didn't have, yeah, I was writing for, I think I was still writing for Time Magazine then, but I didn't have a huge readership. And yes, I'd been blogging and that had been, but who was listening to me? Because here's what I think would have been funny, how I saved the world from Parker Poseyization. But the Parker thing <laughs> Parker, seems so loaded. Posey? She actually lives in a West Village. I haven't seen her for a while. Yeah, I mean, we don't bro yeah, down every day no, or anything. No. I'm just saying She's that that's what I heard. <laughs> you know what I mean? You would think Barcelona, but in yeah, fact, no. Right, no, it's right. The, well, it's the yeah, WV. Right. You know. Yeah, so uh, that's what happened. And it, there you go. And it, as it turns out, it was a very good move. And people so, say, you just did that for sell books. And you know what? I, I wanted to make a joke. And, you know, you're supposed to sell books if you're a writer. You're supposed to. It's uh, steal this book. Yeah, yeah that's right. 
It's the amazing secrets that come out of yeah. this show. So. Yeah, right? And Naked Wine was just, I didn't know what to call it. And I, it, um, I, I wrote the book because I felt I had to, not necessarily because you I... You did feel like you I, had to write it. I felt I had to. And, and, when, and why but, is that? When... When the Natural Wine Week happened in San Francisco, I think it was their first one. That's right. I remember. Yeah. A couple of years back. Yeah. And a few I, I was, and I, you know, it's like when I speak out and like people get mad at me. People got I, mad at you. People got mad yeah. really, I remember I, I was, uh, some West Coast sommeliers saying, I don't think we're going to do it next year because <laughs> this and this. Yeah. But it was, you know, it's a lot of people were jumping on and going, hey, I'm natural, I'm natural. And just what? Greenwashing, guess, as yeah. you said earlier. And I, I just was like, hey, guys, you know, this is going to happen. People are going to co-opt whatever you call it, whether right. you call it real, natural, whatever. People are going to co-opt it. But at least I wanted to publish a book that would just put, talking about context, put it in context. So when people... Uh, distort it to their own marketing needs, there would be at least something down, which will say where this came from and where the philosophy is. And so that's, I just felt it had to be done and it was torture writing it. I, the first book I was in, you know, baby bliss. I just don't think I was happier in my, happier in my life than writing that book. So you talked about how things can get co-opted and distorted. Do you feel like your own name has been co-opted or distorted by people who wanted to argue against what you were advocating? Do you feel like things that you've been, have said were taken out of context that you've been personally targeted? Do you think that um, people have blurred the line on some of the things that you wrote to make their argument stronger? Well, I've certainly been misinterpreted. I've certainly been lambasted. I've certainly been, skewered by people who haven't even read me. Mm -hmm. And that, I, that's... And that was just this morning. Like, that was just <laughs> getting coffee. You're yeah, like, right. come on, dude. Take was... the $5 bill. I know, it's yeah. the smallest change I got. Yeah, it was the guy on the bike who almost ran me over. But um, That's happened to me. Yeah, Those guys get like, vicious. But you're part of that. You brought that I'm through. Right, I know, right. I, yeah, I did. The Morris bike riders. I am. I, it was kind of funny. It's, I, I try not. I try not to read what's written about me. And that was—is that true? Yeah, that was actually. It was Frank Bruni who recommended that to me. He said, "Never read, never read what is written about you. Never read reviews. If you believe the good, you've got to believe the bad. Try not to look at your. Listen to yourself online. You know, try not to. You know, watch yourself on the TV. And so I try to remember to do that. Every once in a while, it comes to me. You know, it says, hey, did you see this? Yeah, no, it it's actually seems less these days. Uh, years ago, it was Joe Dresner who also said, you know, you better get over it. You're a public figure now. And I'm like, no, I'm not. And he said, yeah, you do. You write for the Times. You're public. I'm like, no, I'm not. It took me a long time to actually understand that. But it still is inconceivable to me that that it happens. So because I learned everything from TV, I learned or heard once something I think of sometimes on a TV show that I watched a lot where the guy said, it's not the press that you get that uh, changes your conception or makes you feel different, like with the reviews. It's the myth that's created through them. Right. That can actually change what you think about yourself. Oh. Has that happened to you where your own personal sense? Because it is something 
that comes through so clearly in your writing, Alice. This is Alice. Have you looked at yourself differently as what was the what the stakes were since you jumped out of that bathtub, got mm-hmm. bigger and bigger and bigger? Uh, no. Okay. I think that, and I've thought a lot this about this a lot, and I talk to friends of mine that have you know, music careers or are in front of the public a lot about what it's like to be objectified by the audience. It, people who have recognition in their 20s, I cannot imagine how they'd cope with it. That has totally got a mess with your head. And it's, you know, it's I'm fully formed. As fully formed probably when I popped out of the womb. I mean, I think it's just my personality. Uh, I, but it has been very slow, I think. Are you saying you're not 20 anymore? I'm not 20 anymore. Okay, I'm just making sure. anymore. But uh, not even 40 anymore. But you think that gives you a stronger sense of self. You came through, you know who you are. And as things got big, uh, you didn't need to change because how could you at this point? You know who you are. Yeah, I even wonder, I mean, if all of a sudden I, you know, like was making a real living, I... I don't know. What if I could afford to buy a place? Like, would I change? I don't know. Maybe. Mm-hmm. Maybe. Mm-hmm. Who knows? But, You'd have a bunch of modernist architecture and like the right, Bauhaus you know? and stuff. Get and rid people. of the, you know, the tub, get a shower. I don't know. I don't know if it would change me that much. I, I think it, I, I am who I am. And what has changed just recently is that I do understand that people are reading me and do want want something for me. And I've been slow to accept that it's been your own thing and this narrative what were the things that affected it oh my narrative what things that affected it um hmm. like what story in the vineyard or what vintner or what slope led you to think hey this is the direction i'm gonna take or was it like you said the opposite where you saw all the stainless steel and you said i'm not into this oh well that was really and that that was really very interesting and it was um I, maybe I'm just not saying it because I feel like I've said it so much. It really is when I was writing that Food and Wine magazine official wine guide, and I hated most of the wines that I was tasting. And I thought they're all dreck and really whole regions that I used to love. I could not find wines that I liked, except the wines from France, and which led me to meet Joe Dresner. And it was Joe who... Um, you know, was telling me that it wasn't just all new oak, it was selected yeast. And then I took that further and I played journalist about the wines that I was rejecting and what exactly went into that. And that's when I started exploring technology. And at that point, I found that was the soapbox. It's, um, I, I actually found that very profound because it, I, realized that the garbage about the the line that I was given over and over about wine being made in the vineyard, right, and totally fucked up in the winery, um, it that was the truth. And so, yeah, no, and also, you know, my father, who was an extremely problematic character, but was also a civil liberties lawyer, and we really had a household that was very much at least on my father's side, very politically involved. And I think I bring that sense of right and wrong and outrage. I was a kid in school who spoke up to the teacher. I got expelled for 
for it. And I just was, I was extremely, I was always a paradox, extremely shy, pathologically shy, painfully shy. Uh, how many different ways can I say that? And yet not afraid to say what needed to be said, especially if it was for someone else. Speaking up for myself is way more difficult. Is that, what was the model? Like, did your dad sit you down and say, this is what's important. We need to do this. No, I basically had no parenting. Yeah. I remember <laughs> you talking about being free on St. Mark's Place and, uh, you know, he was off yeah. with other right. ideas yeah. and other priorities. Ideas. Yeah. And uh, it was that kind of era where kids didn't uh, right. get chaperoned all the time. And yeah, exactly. No, there, there was a really very little... Parenting, I was expected to be a good Orthodox Jewish girl on my mother's side. We, my mother was Orthodox. My father was um, what they called a Shabbos guy, which means he went around putting lights on Shabbos, which is, you know, Friday night to Saturday. And, uh, yeah, no, it was just, um, mm, no, there was no really, this is right, this is wrong. I think I, it was probably the only thing that I respected in my father. And maybe it is the one thing that he gave me now, which is very interesting. I never really thought about that. Now I'm going to start crying. It's about, um, yeah. So he wasn't all bad. Are you going to have time to write or do you have the desire to write another book now that the newsletter is going to come out? I am writing another book or at least a book proposal. And I don't know whether I'm going to another, write another wine book. I don't know as far as a wine book whether I have anything left to say um, or right now. I don't want to write Naked Wine 3. Mm -hmm. Jaws 3 was terrible. Yeah, see, the sequel just never works. Uh, There are a couple of other books, but I seem to want to write. I have ideas that are narrower and narrower as opposed to having a more, you know, general audience. Does that come along with... uh developing closer and closer relations to what's happening. It's harder and harder to break it down for people who are back here and have uh, less of the, the basics out of the way. Well, I, don't, I don't know. I think it's just, why do I write, want to write a book? To explain things for myself. And I would love to do a soil book. It seems like a lot, there's a lot there that we don't know. Yeah. And you did just write an interesting article in Wine and Spirits, kind of glancing on that topic. That was a really, I loved writing that story. That was really, I was very, I was very grateful to Josh Green for calling me up to ask me to do that. Talking to David Lilly, which you did, is so fascinating to talk about. Terroir, he's so thoughtful. Uh, You know, the other day I was sitting with him in the office and a particular piece of jazz came on and we weren't necessarily talking about jazz, which I know very little about, honestly. And he explained to me in depth about that piece in a way that was quite moving and uh, related it uh, very clearly to its own context. Mm-hmm. And I asked David, when's the jazz book coming out? Yeah. And he said, well, Levy, several people have done that already. <laughs> and it, it just seems like a self-effacing man that's in, entirely David. knowledgeable. Entirely. But it, just won't take the credit. It's the way he says, I'm not the writer, Alice, you are. David's a really good writer. He is, he's, when somebody's that thoughtful, you know, it, and he just, he has a voice. He, it works. It's, yeah, he could totally write a book on jazz. It would be very interesting. 
But actually, I just got an idea for another book. I wonder whether I'm going to do it now. I can't share it with you. No, no, that's fine. I'm. It's 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 a cutthroat out there in the world of. of I know uh, it is cutthroat. And you know, <laughs> people people want ideas. Sometimes I feel like if I don't get to Europe, I can't think of a new idea to put on my own blog. Like if I don't get to the source, I'm I just sit in New York and chase other writers' tales. Well, that's exactly. I feel the same way that if I don't travel, I don't have anything to say. Um, and it is a very interesting harpy-like thing that's going on. On seems like there's the topic of the week, yeah. like, "Hey, this guy said that," and we're all going to weigh in on it for right. this week. Which, and then next week, which yeah, means you have an audience of the same twenty people. Mm-hmm. So what's the point? I try to stay out of that one every once in a while. There's just something that you've got to say. Have you started to say to yourself, you know, I don't need to get into this particular scrap? Yes. Have there been less? It seems like there's been less scraps lately. Oh, with with Alice. Yeah, with with yeah. There have. I I don't know. Seems like less have bubbled to the surface in a world where, as we're saying, people love to have them bubble up. It was funny when I launched the Kickstarter, and you know, I did take a look at Wine Berserkers. Uh huh. Uh huh. Just because they were saying some nasty things, I was curious. You know, because I had gotten a lot of. A lot of subscribers from Wine Berserkers. A lot of traffic through the... Yeah. yeah, exactly. A lot of people uh, read they, that site. They click through to me and they signed up for the newsletter. Right. So it's go, oh my God, you know, Wine Berserkers are like are curious about what I'm doing. And, right. And it's really very funny about some of the negative comments. And they were shot down very quickly. And I was like, hmm, what's going on here? So do you think the tide has turned a little bit? Um, I'm short. I'm five feet. I have red hair. I think that I'm too easy of a target. It'll come back. Uh, But maybe it has. I don't know. Maybe it has. I don't understand that mentality. Um, I just don't understand it. So I'm I'm trying to take more of a backseat and say, okay, let's watch this. Let's not get so personally involved and just watch it. Do you realize and acknowledge the model that you are for the young female sommeliers and wine writers in the New York area? I'm talking about people in their 20s. Um, No. Because I would say that there are significant influences that are getting handed down. Do you see yourself as a role model? I'm asking Charles Barkley of Natural Wine here. Are you a role model? I would be a very, well, okay, I'm trying, I would be, I'm getting embarrassed. I'd be a really poor role model. I don't know what I'd be a role model for. Um, What would I be a role model for? When I first met Pascaline, Mm -hmm. in this way, I I will take it out of her mouth. So I met her in 2007 in Paris, and she read my blog. It was great. And she thanked me for encouraging people to go out into the vines, which is what you brought up earlier. And that's a role model, so I'll, I'll accept that. But I don't know, as being a wine writer, I can never really encourage anybody to be a wine writer. I never wanted to be a wine writer. So spell that out for people who may not have had it, experienced it directly. What's it like to be a wine writer? Well, I, what is it like to be a wine writer? Difficult. Yeah. There are very few, I mean, there are very few places to write about wine. Um, there's, 
the piece of the pie is ridiculously small, way smaller than being a food writer. And if anybody's read Amanda Hesser's, if I was, you know, being a food writer today, you know, be basically you can't do this without a husband to support you. It's, um, it's a very strange goal. And I don't know anybody when I started 20 years ago who actually thought they wanted to be a wine writer. Mm Mm-hmm. And I was a writer, and I got pigeonholed as a wine writer. I used to write about design, food, and. Uh, but you staked your turf. Is that a liability? Yes. Or is that? I think it's a liability. If the newsletter pans out, it will be. Um, it will prove to be a good thing. So you're saying that when someone has a broad piece on wine, like we often see published in more general interest publications, right. they don't necessarily call you because you're in one segment of uh, what they think of as the potential writers. Yes. You're not thought of as a generalist. Right. Even has though, that cost you money? It has cost me money. It has cost me money. And it's, um, but also, you know, I have less, I have less patience for pitching stories that have no interest in doing that anymore. The stories that I want to write are really large, in-depth stories with a cultural angle. And we're still in a culture culture that doesn't accept the cultural angle to wine. And I just don't want to write, you know, fluffy little wine pieces. I don't like boring myself. And I probably have better use for my time. If I'm given an assignment, it's still money, I will take it, but I'm not going to pursue that, no interest. If you can do that kind of thing, there is a market, in, but a lot of competition for it. Let's talk about the blog a little bit. Let's talk about blog. Last year, you won an important award for it. Yes. How did it get started? What has, because I know you've struggled with the idea at times of whether you should keep it going. Mm, right. Based on time or, um, I don't know, you tell me. What has been the struggle and what has been the good moments and what have been the bad moments and how long has it been going and why? It's been going on for a long time, since 2004. And also uh, my friend Josh Mack had basically forced me into blogging. He said, I'm going to build it for you and you're going to do it. And I kind of want to do it. But I, I was frustrated that there were so many bits and pieces that I felt were really worthy of publication that I couldn't publish. It was the stuff that was getting left out of yeah. the general interest pieces. Right. That I really wanted a place for them, and I felt that have an audience, and it was right. I mean, there was an audience for it. There was just, I just, you know, some of the people that I was meeting, I couldn't believe it, that I couldn't convince, like, Food & Wine magazine to embrace a really great story. I just couldn't believe it. So, uh, or the other obvious outlets, so... Uh, it was fun, and I. Every writer needs an audience. Every actor needs an audience. Musician needs an audience, and I needed an audience. How has your audience helped you along, outside of this Kickstarter thing, which was obviously a great, great thing, huge thing? Well, just to know somebody cares, somebody's reading, so getting feedback. Um, that getting feedback on my writing style, and I do think you asked before whether it has made some difference. I think that. My style of blogging, which was um, a little bit always out of the box, whatever box that was, did make room for more emotional blog posts, Mm -hmm. I suppose, or more Mm -hmm. writerly blog posts. 
And sometimes I wonder if you've already had a glass of wine when you sit down to the keyboard. Has that ever happened? That has happened. Just curious, you know, for good reasons often. Uh, for often, of, very of good flow, reasons. you know. Yeah, often. Yeah. One of the things I've seen is that uh, you have experienced a lot of feedback. I remember one time there was a situation with a book uh, that you had contributed to about wine cellars. <laughs> And their design. And That's right. Someone had been maybe a little dismissive, but how did when it was talked so about funny. originally, when it was released, how did that story end up coming back around? How is it that things can change sometimes? Oh, that's really funny. About a lot of people were like, "Oh yeah, Alice writing a, a story about big expensive wine cellars." You know, it's a gig. People forget that writers have to make a living. It is amazing. It is just amazing to me. It's kind of like the same thing with people who have huge jobs on Wall Street, like say to me that, oh yeah, I'd love to have your job. Well, first of all, it's not a job. Second of all, try to live on what I live on. I'm very good at it, but um, I'm, off, I'm off topic. But there have been people who have walked out of rooms when they heard that I wrote that book. But how did that turn around? What do you mean how that turned around? How did that story come about? Did you have any contact later with that family? Um, yes, I did. And what was oh, the end result? You do read my blog, don't you? I read you? your blog all the time. Okay. Every day I check it. For those I'm who may not know number, what well, uh, my fabulous interviewer is talking about. So I was in Healdsburg doing a reading of The Battle for Wine and Love. It was one of my first readings. And somebody asked me, so what new project are you working on? I said, well, actually, I'm working on this book, Living with Wine, and it's about high-end um, wine cellars. And this guy had been listening really intently, real farmer dude, stands up, walks out, and I note it. So he walks out of the room. Yeah. It turns out this guy was Joe Messick, and his daughter stayed on and talked very movingly about her father and about the kind of wine that he makes, which is very close to the kind of wine that I write about. And he's very much the kind of person that I would have loved to have hung with. And this year, two, a few months after he died, his, um, his memoir came out. And my friend Kevin Hamill, who makes wine in Healdsburg, sent it to me. And I wrote about it. I was very moved by it. And it was a very, just kind of seasons the vines and what is it like. The guy was from New Jersey and he moved out to Sonoma to farm. And I was very moved by it. And I wrote, um, and I wrote about it on the blog and I got phenomenal response on it, including from his publisher, but also from his widow who who basically was shocked that I could understand somebody who I had never met. And basically when it came down to it, I would be somebody that Joe would have really much have enjoyed meeting and talking with. So there was that misconne misconnection yeah. there. And you guys would have liked to have been friends, probably. Yeah. But one of you gave up on each other. Has there been times where you maybe have done that to other people where later you have thought, ah, oh, I missed it with that guy? Or girl, or anything. Is there things where you didn't see the context at the time and now regret that you didn't have a connection? As somebody who's prone to 
those kind of snap decisions. You know, I don't know whether I ever walked out of anybody because of what they said. And when you see somebody on a podium, it's going to be different. But I have to say that I'm a great believer and you know everything you need to know about somebody in the first, I would say, 30 seconds, but I'll give you two minutes of being with somebody. Um, and I have to say I'm very rarely wrong that if I then make excuses for somebody, I eventually, even if it's 10 years later, go back to that original feeling. Um, so do you think that you've stuck out relationships that maybe other people wouldn't have because of that original sense that you had that this was right? Right. And that maybe it paid off later. Mm. Yeah, you could say Joe Dresner was one of those. You guys had sometimes a back and forth. Mm, big back and forth. Um, uh, but it, I tend to be extremely loyal and if um, I will always view Joe as my mentor because if it weren't for him, that meeting in his office, I don't know how my life would have progressed. Um, yeah. So that was a difficult relationship in the end, but you know, I, I tend to adore difficult characters. Okay, actually, though, wait. No, no, no. I'm not going to take that one back. No, own it. Whatever you want to do. Whatever. I was just going to ask you about the newsletter next, so That's there's no okay. follow-up to it's that fine. question. You know, actually, it's funny because I'm going to bring up Robert Parker. Okay. Uh, I always had very good... Uh, I interviewed him. I met him. Thought he was charming. So did I. Many times. Yeah. Always super nice. Super nice like, guy. Like way nicer than anybody else in the room. Right. Like considerate, would remember me when nobody else did. Totally. Super nice. Um, and uh, yeah, so that relationship didn't end up too well. Uh, but, you know, it's a, if it's a long life, that might too end up or maybe I misjudged him. I don't know. What would that mean to you if you guys in the end became close? Well, I don't imagine that would ever come close, but I would really uh, welcome, you know, hanging with him and just talking about it because I don't think my book, okay, I, I did my book do, my book did the advocate no harm. I think my message was something that somebody was going to bring up at some point. I did not cause the demise of the 100-point system. And look at James Suckling. He's going strong with the 100-point system. The fact that it's changing and it's no longer the only game in town may be a bit of a threat. Um, what I had always said in the book, that it was Parkerization, it wasn't Parker. It, it was the people making wine to his palate and the fact that he never acknowledged that. It's the only thing. The homogenization. Yeah. Yeah. So you're going to launch a newsletter. I'm going to launch a newsletter. Presumably it will have an influence. Are you hoping that more people will follow in the style of the wines that you promote? Or are you hoping that they all stay small and that that doesn't happen? I'm hoping that there are more small people that actually I had predicted it was going to be going on in California is interesting. And 
I'd, I'd really like to see some of these huge vineyards be broken up and more people being able to farm and the return of the vigneron. I would really love to see that. That would be great. Um, I think that it's impossible. It's like I moved in to my block. It was Little Italy. Now it's Nolita. You cannot stop things from happening. I know that right now, I think that we're in a totally glorious period of winemaking. Extremely exciting. Uh, it's nice that this is happening right now in my lifetime, and I get to see it. When I'm an old lady, it might change. I might be disgruntled again. I don't know. But I think that it's impossible to make truly natural wine in the spirit on a grand scale. It has to be a small-scale enterprise. Yeah, pretty much. Hands in the ground. Yeah. Yeah, I'm not saying that there can't be good wine made on a large level. And I know um, recently there's been some discussion on Twitter about like Lopez de Hedia. Oh, right. Right? Vaguely, I recall this. Vaguely, you remember this? And I think that is a perfect example of a glorious, glorious, glorious wine that is made on a large scale. It is possible. It's a different kind of wine. I think I recall somebody saying that Raphael's workshop had 50 people working in it. Yeah. But maybe it's not as in tune with the human spirit as Michelangelo's, which was a single dude. I don't know. That is something to ponder. I don't know. You know, I had in 1987 um, Gran Reserva Blanco the other day that actually I... I over, I cook my wines in my apartment. Mm-hmm. It is not temperature control. Well, it's been acknowledged in the right. past. Right. Okay. And I thought, okay, this guy, this guy's got to go. Mm-hmm. It has survived too many. It was beautiful. Grand Reserve '87. Yep. Oh. It was phenomenal. It's a good one. Phenomenal, and it survived my apartment. It was. How did that do it? It was um, just just superb. I'll drink that wine anytime. I mean, it's uh, small and natural is fabulous, but authentic and classic is fabulous as well. And there's room for both. Well, Alice Firing, where can people find out more if they don't know already about what you're up to, both already and in the future? Well, one can go to alicefiring.com and there is going to be information up there on the newsletter. E before I, I before E. F-E-I-R-I-N-G. Actually, it's pretty interesting. If you Google Alice and wine, you do get to my site. Oh, really? So it's pretty hard to lose me. I don't know how that Down happened. the rabbit hole. Yeah, it happens all the time. And that's the way you can find or follow me on Twitter, Alice Firing, or but actually go to the blog. It's got more information, actually, more information than anybody needs to know about me. And when is the newsletter expected to hit? It will hit the end of October but definitely before November 4th and I yeah that's it'll come out every six weeks I think thank you Alice thank you Levy All Drink to That is hosted and produced by myself Levy Dalton Aaron Scala has contributed original pieces editorial assistance has been provided by Bill Kimsey the show music was performed and composed by Rob Moose and Thomas Bartlett. Show artwork by Alicia Tenoyan. T-shirts, sweatshirts, coffee mugs, and so much more, including show stickers, notebooks, and even gift wrap are available for sale if you check the show website, 
alldrinktothatpod.com. That's I-L-L, drinktothatpod.com, which is the same place you'd go to sign up for our email list or to make one of the crucially important donations that help keep this show operating. You can donate from anywhere using PayPal or Stripe on the show website. Remember to hit subscribe or to follow this show in your favorite podcast app, please. That's super important to see every episode. And thank you for listening.